Good morning. So our study team, study theme for this team, it must be Super Bowl Sunday. Must be stuck. My team isn't playing today. I'm terribly disappointed. I know my cowboy fans. I know you guys have your heart with me. It's not even fun. (laughs) So we've been studying masters, mystics, and metaphysicians. And we will be studying them all year long. And we've learned a few things about what those words mean. We've learned that a master is someone who is committed to a particular line of study. We've learned that masters have teachers. That they're always looking for the next teacher. That a master will rarely call him or herself a master. Because they are always following someone that they perceive as knowing even more than they do. We've learned that a master, that a, a pursuit of mastery can, be, can begin at any time in life. So you could pick up the flute today and decide you were going to master it. And whether you played it for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years wouldn't matter. Because the great joy in pursuing mastery of something, anything, is the consistent onward learning that is part of it. Getting to the point of mastery is not the joy, is it? It's the pursuit of mastery, the constant refining of your skill, of your ability, of your knowledge, that makes pursuit of mastery such a wonderful thing and such a rare thing in our society because most of us don't make time to master anything. We we are a jack of many trades. We've learned that mystics are very simply... People who have one-to-one direct contact with the mystical, with the divine, with the holy, to such the degree that their personal experience is so powerful that all they can do is share it, that there is, there is nothing that will take that away. Charles Fillmore, Myrtle Fillmore, our founding couple, were mystics, weren't they? Charles was considered a great American mystic. Rumi, who we're going to talk about today, was a Sufi mystic. And we've talked about metaphysicians, metaphysicians being people who look at the world we share through different eyes, looking metaphysically or beyond the physical to see what it is, what are the workings of this world? How does this happen? What is the bigger picture beyond the just day-to-day black and white? And the reason that we're spending time exploring people who have taken these paths is because our great longing is to understand the life that we lead now and to have direct contact with our eternal self through our divine connection, through our true knowing that there is something more than what we see in our day-to-day life. So we have way showers. We call Jesus a way shower. We call Buddha a way shower. We have way showers who had these experiences and in whose footsteps we can follow in our own pursuit of spiritual mastery, in our own divine journey, in our seeking. And Rumi was a powerful teacher. He didn't really get noted in the United States until the early 2000s. And I'm going to share a video with you that was made in 2007. 
in a year when we here in the United States honored Rumi. And I want you to have a chance to see it because the importance for all of us is to get deeper beyond the words of Rumi's poetry to who this person was. Just imagine that Rumi is a guy sitting next to you. He was a real flesh and blood person who had a profound experience in his lifetime and wrote about it in a way that those words still bring us to a deep place of love and longing. So we're going to learn who he really was. Who was this man? What was unique about his path and what brought him to his great learning? So I want to have you take a minute and watch this video. Eight centuries ago, on September 30, 1207, in the town of Vaksh, in what is today southwestern Tajikistan, a son was born to Muhammad Bahahuddin Vilat and his wife Muminya Hatun. Bahahuddin was a religious scholar and mystic of great reputation, whose knowledge and piety were so intense that he came to be known as the king of religious scholars. Little did this couple know, however, that their baby boy, whom they named Muhammad, in honor of the last prophet and messenger of the one God, would one day grow to be a man whose reputation would surpass that of his esteemed father. Little did they know that their son's ecstatic and uncompromising religious devotion would one day be so powerful that his spiritual poetry would continue to refresh and reanimate souls all around the world for centuries after his death. This great and humble man is known to the ages as Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. His spiritual legacy has been so profound and so enduring that the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization has declared 2007 to be the year of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. 2007, then, is a year in which we pay special tribute to this 13th century figure whose life and teachings so passionately exemplify what UNESCO has described as the universal values of tolerance, reason, and access to knowledge through love. Who exactly was this man, who is often referred to simply as Mevlana, our master, or Rumi, meaning the one who lived most of his life in Anatolia? First and foremost, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi was a Muslim. His life was radically defined by his commitment both to study and observe God's law for humanity as revealed in the Quran and the example of the Prophet Muhammad. In fact, it would be no exaggeration to say that Mevlana actually lived up to the honorific portion of his name. He was, by all accounts, Jalaluddin, an exemplar of the religion of Islam. He was a Muslim who, by all accounts, lived a life of unmitigated submission to the one true God. By giving witness to God's utter uniqueness, by observing five daily obligatory prayers, by giving obligatory alms and other kinds of charity to those in need, and by fasting during the month of Ramadan, and by journeying to Mecca and performing the rites of the sacred pilgrimage at least once in his life, 
Rumi followed the path of the Prophet Muhammad in his striving to place God at the uncontested center of his life. But Mevlana was not only a Muslim. He was also a migrant on both the material and spiritual planes of his existence. Along with his family, Rumi left his Central Asian homeland on the eve of the devastating Mongol invasion. His personal experience leaving home and traveling for years before eventually reaching his adopted Anatolian home in Konya undoubtedly made its mark on his spirituality. As a migrant who wandered for many years without a permanent home, Mevlana had an acute sense of the suffering of people whose experience of being displaced or bereft of resources were much more severe than his own. At the same time, it is evident from his poetry that Mevlana understood both the pain and the growth that results from being on a journey to find where one needs to be. It is no coincidence that themes and images of loss, return, and loss once again abound in Rumi's poetry, where he plums the depth of his own relationship with the God who is both enthroned high above the heavens in inapproachable light, and yet at the same time is closer to the human being as his or her jugular vein. Finally, Mevlana was a mystic whose experience of spiritual purification through love began in earnest on November 29, 1244. It was on this day when Rumi met the wandering dervish and master of the interior life known as Shamsi Tabrisi. In and through his relationship with Shams, Rumi came to understand the spiritual significance of his own experience as an actual migrant. He came to understand that all human longing for home is rooted in the deep structure of the human heart, which was designed for a singular underlying purpose, to draw the human being into a closer relationship with God. In this respect, the practice Rumi learned from Shams, the practice of contemplative turning on the axis of the left leg and thus of the heart, reveals itself as a metaphor for the blessed state in which every fiber of an individual's being revolves around the central axis of the merciful and compassionate creator and sustainer of all things. In and through his relationship with Shams, Rumi also came to see that if the most basic purpose of the heart is to put a person in relationship with the divine, then all other relationships within the created order especially relationships with one's fellow human beings, are mystical gateways into closer relationship with the Creator. Though he never forgot that his mystic master was merely and thoroughly human, this is how Rumi was drawn into a deeper and deeper intimacy with God through his profound love for Shams. At the opening of his great epic poem, The Masnavi, Mevlana invites his listeners to explore the secret of human existence by hearkening to the message hidden in the plaintive tones of the ney, or reed flute. Listen to the reed flute, says Rumi, as it tells the story, as it complains about its experiences of separation. Ever since they cut me from the reed bed, men and women lament when they hear the song of my sorrow. The bosom I seek is one ripped to shreds from the experience of separation. 
so that I might adequately describe the pain of longing. Whoever is far from her roots wants to go back to the day when she was still connected. I have sung my song of sorrow in every type of gathering, joining both the distressed in spirit and those at peace. Each person became my friend according to his own conceit. No one sought my secrets from within me. My secret is not far from my lament. Yet that light belongs neither to the eye nor ear. The body is not concealed from the soul, and neither is the soul from the body. Yet no one ever seems to see the soul. In his poetry, and in his ritual legacy of turning, known as the Sama, Mevlana attempts to evoke in those with eyes to see, with ears to listen, and with hearts to be torn by love, the quiet secret of human existence. It is a secret that is perhaps even more easily lost in the noise of modern secular materialism and individualism than it was in the days of Mevlana himself. What is this secret? One can never say for sure or adequately express it in words. Perhaps it is that we are only whole when we fully realize our need for the one divine beloved whom we can never possess. Perhaps it is that we can only hope to attain wholeness by stepping outside ourselves in authentic, loving relationships with others. Of course, only our own sincere searches will reveal what this secret is. And God knows best. So Rumi was a tormented soul. He had a very interesting life. You saw in the video, Rumi was born to a father who was considered a theological king. He was a very prestigious man, his father, his mother as well. He came into a household of wealth and power and influence, and he grew up that way. But the wealth and power and influence were well-seated in his religious faith, where he learned to practice in a very committed way all the things that were part of his spiritual path, praying five times a day, going to Mecca. All of the, the fasting and the participation in ceremony that he demonstrated showed that he would follow in the path of his father, that he would be like his father, a theological king, might even have been called a theological prince because of his deep dedication to his spiritual practice. So in our country, we break things up in systems called upper class, middle class, lower class, um, one percent. We break our society up in lots of segmentations and and exclusionary practices and names, don't we? We try not to. We're working on not doing that. But it still happens here. It's the same way in other countries. And where Rumi came from, there was a caste system. 
And people of power did not interact with people without power. Not so different than how we are today. So when, when Rumi was about 38 years old, in his late 30s, he met a man named Shams. And Shams, here's it. Rumi is a very refined, powerful prince of theological practice who met a man who was uncouth, unclean. He was a wandering spiritualist. He didn't buy into any particular faith or practice. And nobody liked him because he was rude. He was brutishly rude and unpleasant to be with. And Shams had been wandering the countryside. Shams was 60 years old, by the way. An old, scruffily man. Wandering the countryside, looking for a student who would be a grand master teacher. Not just any student, but someone in whom he could confide his deepest spiritual knowings. Someone whom he could cultivate as a grand master teacher who would take out in the world with some level of grace what he couldn't give because he didn't have the personality. He didn't have the style. He didn't have the influence. He was looking for not a student, but the student. And while he was looking for the student, he was praying to Allah, please give me someone who can be a companion to me. Someone who can put up with all of my uncomfortable behavior. Someone who will see me just like I am. The way we all are, right? All looking for someone who can see us and despite all of our flaws, can love us and care what we have to say and will want to be with us, want to spend time with us. So when they met, the two of them were a very mixed and uncomfortable match. Not for the two of them, but for society around them. Imagine if you were a very wealthy family caring for your child and watching your son grow up to be an influential man and he started hanging out with somebody who you thought was not going to be the right influence. The people in the city wanted Rumi to be who he was supposed to be who he was supposed to be. And they were worried that this crusty old man was going to be a bad influence because that's how they saw him. So Rumi was born in Persia, which is, um, to kind of give you an idea where that is, he was born in the area that is now Afghanistan, and he lived across Turkey and Iran. As, As you may have caught in the video When the Mongols came into his homeland, he became a migrant. They were run out of their homeland. But when you are a person of influence, you are traveling with an entourage, aren't you? You're traveling protected. You're traveling with some level of luxury, some level of comfort compared to other people. So he had a chance to see, as he migrated across the countryside, he had a chance to see great poverty. He had a chance to see people being people at all levels, it changed him. Had he stayed in his one place, he might never have opened up to someone like Shams. But interacting with people in all different castes 
changed him and allowed him to see the good in people despite where they came from. And Shams was an amazing teacher who took Rumi out of a traditional kind of practice into the mystical. So some of you might know, and some of you might not know, that Sufi is the mystical arm of Islam. It, it is, um, uh, Rumi was Muslim and he was Sufi. He practiced the mystical practices, the mystical arts, but none of that started until he met Shams. And when he met Shams, he engaged in something called Sobets, S-O-H-B-E-T-S, Sobets. Sobets is deep conversation, and Sobets still happen today, mostly in Turkey. It's a practice amongst men, a practice of deep conversation and, and secret sharing that is only allowed between people who have a proven history of not um, over drinking, not gambling, who hold themselves in a relatively pure state. And they have deep conversations, very close conversations. And in that country, it's not unusual to see men huddled around a table in a rich, deep conversation, even holding hands across the table. It's a very touchy culture, a very close um, culture, especially between men. So they met and they engaged in deep, sweet, rich conversation. And that conversation, even as it does today, can include plays and dance and art and all kinds of experiences beyond talking. And until that time, Rumi had not engaged in any of those things. He'd practiced in the very traditional way his Muslim faith. But when he met Shams, he began to turn. He began the work of the whirling dervish. He began to turn. And that turn is done on your left foot. You may have heard that conversation. We're going to talk about whirling dervishes. If I can find some in Colorado, maybe we'll see one. I don't know if we have any here. But I'm going to see. We're going to learn about what that practice was and what, what that turning signifies. He was tormented because... He and Shams were so close that he brought Shams to live with him and the whole community went crazy. Remember, these are people who live in small villages. It's not a city like, like we live in. They're small groups of people. And when something like that happens, everybody is interested. They didn't want those two castes to mix. There was great persecution for both Rumi and especially for Shams, who was at 60 years old, an old man. Here, 60 years old, that's three years from me. That's not a big deal. But in the 13th century, 60 years old looked very different than it does today. And they did not want that old man living with Rumi. So Rumi was tormented because he loved his teacher. And we're going to talk about that love and that relationship and all the different stories that go along with it. And we're going to talk about what it is to give your heart to love. What it is to love with such a longing that the only thing that could really satisfy that longing is to come directly in contact 
with what Rumi called the Beloved, capital B, the Beloved. His writings express his oneness with the Creator, his oneness with the Divine Heart. And he saw every relationship on the way to that as a way to really understand what love is. So if you have ever had in your life a relationship where someone went away and you longed for them, if you have ever had in your heart a longing for the perfect relationship, if you have ever had in your heart a desire to truly meet the heart of divine love, then you'll understand the journey that Rumi was on by the end of this month. If you've not had those experiences, your heart will be opened in a different way than it has before. Because this is not a, this is not a romantic story about perfect love. This is a story about what love is really like in our life, which is messy and sometimes painful, painfully painful, and rich and opening and amazing at a level it's very difficult to put words around. So I want to invite you, as you go through this month, into, and the key word there is invite, into this piece of paper you got. On, stop falling off of there. There you go. You got as you came in. Conveniently, there are 28 phrases from Rumi for the 28 days of February. And I want to invite you to take this paper home and to put it next to your bed, to put it on a, on a bedside table, or to put it on your refrigerator, or to tape it to your mirror. Please do not stick it with all the other papers on your workspace or with your bills, because it will crawl underneath and you will never see it again. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it. So we have choice, don't we? In this community, we honor sovereignty. You are sovereign in yourself. You have the ability to make your own choices about the spiritual experience you want to cultivate. These invitations are asking you to consider, are you cultivating or just walking through your spiritual experience? Cultivation takes care and attention. So I will periodically give you tools to cultivate your spiritual experience. This is a tool. While we're studying Rumi, let's get inside his head and his heart. Let's get to know what he wrote. And we're going to do it in a simple way. You can choose one of these each day. Just cross off whatever one. It doesn't have to be right in order or it can be. Whatever is easiest for you. But choose a different line, a different poem, a different quote from Rumi each day. And just let it rest in your heart for that day. Just take it in. Give it a little bit of thought, but mostly give it space in your heart to fan that flame that we talked about earlier, to build up the strength of your heart, to understand a deeper, richer, more powerful kind of love. And by the end of this month, our experience with love will be different. So I'm going to read a few of these to you in closing. Let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pull of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. Life is a balance between holding on and letting go. 
The wound is the place where the light enters you. All I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. And the last quote I put in larger print for today, just because I think this one, if you only worked with this one the whole month, it would change who you are. It would change your experience and potentially open you to that mystical place that we've been talking about. There is a voice that doesn't use words. Listen. Listen.